Okay. So, for the last uh, few weeks now, I've been uh, teaching a really small group in Alameda, um, teaching an intensive on the four foundations of mindfulness. And it's really gotten me excited again about these foundations of practice. And just like anything that you teach, which any, any of you who have ever taught anything know that when you teach something, it forces you, in a way, to look a little bit deeper, to get to know your material a little bit better, which is a real bonus <laughs> for me, personally. Having um, practiced the Four Foundations, having um, studied them, and now having to teach them, it's, it's opening my eyes to uh, another level of the importance of these teachings. And this last week, we've moved on to the second foundation. And I've gotten really excited about the second foundation. <laughs> and I've been teaching out of this book by Analayo, a beautiful book called the Satipatthana. And it's based on the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the Sutta of the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. Beautiful book. If you haven't read it, I would highly recommend it. And I have a copy up here if you want to look through it. And so according to Analayo and according to the suttas, the second foundation is uh, vital to our awakening. It has incredible potential to deepen our understanding of our perceptions, our opinions, our, uh, the building of our self, our ego, the wheel of samsara, the, the dukkha that we are producing often. Um, we can understand all of these pieces of our experience through this second foundation by closely paying attention to the second foundation. So this is exciting. This is good news. And so as I've been teaching it uh, and asking my students to look at this second foundation closer, I too have been taking time and looking at the second foundation closer. And so this is what I want to share with you this evening is an exploration into the second foundation of mindfulness, which is Vedana. So Vedana, when translated into English, is often translated as feeling tone. This is kind of a tricky uh, translation because here in the West, feeling is usually associated with a body sensation, or an emotion. And Vedana is actually neither. Tone, feeling tone, the tone part I really like. It's the tone of the experience, the underlying tone of what's, going, what's being perceived, what's going on. That, to me, is a better um, explanation of what Vedana is. But you'll see it in texts often as just feeling or feeling tone. 
some other definitions or other translations that I found, uh, flavor um, or the texture of the experience. So what they're talking about, tone, texture, uh, flavor, they're talking about pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And it's this part of our experience that is there all the time, but often goes very much unnoticed. And why is that? Because what's often uh, layered on top of it is our experience of emotion, uh, our physical experience, our mental experience, the stories that are going on in our head. We often completely miss that underlying tone of, is it pleasant, is it unpleasant, or is it neutral? And that Vedana is there all the time. It's there all the time for us to notice. This Vedana, it pops up in a few different lists. So not just the uh, four foundations, but also the 12 links of dependent origination. I'm going to talk a little bit about that later on in the talk. Um, It also pops up in the five aggregates. So this Vedana, this piece of our experience, is uh, something that the Buddha referred to quite quite often and is a part of our experience he highlights and asks us to pay close attention to. The nature of Vedana is that it's impermanent, just like everything else, really, right? But when we are practicing with Vedana, it's one of the um, characteristics that we pay closest attention to, the fact that it's constantly changing. The wonderful thing about Vedana and the fact that it's constantly changing is that Apparently, and you'll have to see for yourself, is that it's easier sometimes to pay attention to that changing nature than, say, our emotion or our mental thoughts. I think this is because it's not quite as sticky as those mental formations that are a little more complicated than feeling tone. So as you practice, in fact, just sitting here, you can just check in and ask yourself the question, is this moment pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? And usually we can find that answer really quickly without having to search for it, having to strive, having to do much of anything. We can just be aware of it. This moment has this Vedana. And then watching as the moments go by, if that Vedana stays the same or if it changes. I think of Vedana on this scale. And on one side of the scale is unpleasant. On the other side of the scale is pleasant. Somewhere in the middle is neutral. And our experience of Vedana is constantly shifting somewhere on this scale. Sometimes it might be pleasant, 
but it's a, it's a little bit closer to neutral. Sometimes it feels neutral, but if we really look at it, it's leaning slightly over to unpleasant. And so there's these subtleties of Vedana that as we look closer and closer, we can be, we can be more and more familiar with and really see how it varies throughout our moment-to-moment experience. So Vedana is just a natural occurrence. Not only do humans experience, but I believe that animals experience too. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. So the Buddha was saying that there's nothing wrong with these Vedanas. There's nothing wrong with experiencing pleasant. There's nothing wrong with experiencing unpleasant. At the time of the Buddha, this was uh, a little bit radical of an idea. See, he was growing up at a time when uh, the spiritual leaders of the time were often uh, finding or seeking enlightenment and awakening by experiencing a lot of unpleasant. So he was engaged in a lot of these practices. Uh, So starvation, uh, sleeping on beds of nails, things like this. Thinking, and the, the idea was that this would clear one's karma and so bring them closer to enlightenment. So the Buddha found at some point that this wasn't actually working for him. And that was a pivotal, pivotal point in his awakening process to acknowledge that that wasn't the way for him. It wasn't, that didn't mean that he went seeking out pleasure, but became more open to the natural experience of life, which is sometimes unpleasant, and it's sometimes pleasant, and that neither one has to be a problem. Where it becomes part of the link that creates our suffering is when we cling to pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. When we become attached to wanting it one way or the other, when we become very unsatisfied with what's available in this moment. Oftentimes, and we're really, I believe, just created this way as uh, part of the animal kingdom. When something is unpleasant, we do our best to get rid of it, right? (laughs) We don't really want it there. And when we see something that is pleasant, we go for it. We want that. We're pleasant-driven creatures. And this is something that is bred in us for survival, So something that's unpleasant, we try to stay away from to keep ourselves safe, to keep our bodies safe, our minds safe. There can be a lot of wisdom in that. But other times, it's just something that's a little bit annoying or nagging or something that isn't actually life-threatening, but we react in a way as if it was. Same thing with pleasure. Uh, We see pleasure 
as pleasant and want more of it. Ooh, this feels really good. I want to keep myself surrounded by the things that make me feel good. I want to be surrounded by the things that are pleasant. And suddenly, pleasant equals happiness. We are told this, aren't we, in our society? Get this, you'll feel great. Be like this person, you'll be happy. It's advertised to us in this way, this, this formula of pleasant equals happy. So the Buddha is saying that that's not true. From pleasant, we can experience joy. We can experience happiness. But when we cling to it, when we need it to create our happiness, that very clinging, that reaching forward, holding on, is where we begin to connect those links towards dukkha, towards suffering, unsatisfactoriness. Because the nature of vedana, of pleasant, is that it's unpermanent. It's not permanent. It's always changing. So we can spend our entire lives, right, searching for the pleasant, leaning towards the pleasant, thinking that will equal happiness. And it's not satisfying, is it? Same with unpleasant. We'll go back to unpleasant. So pushing that away. How often, though, have we gone through something in our experience that was so unpleasant? And from that place of unpleasantness, when we actually stick with it and don't push it away, we open to it, we hold it with wisdom and compassion, That unpleasant is where the seeds are for wisdom and growth. And we learn so much from those moments of unpleasant. So there's a lot of wisdom in unpleasant. Those places that we're trying so hard to push away, get away, but actually equanimity, compassion, these are uh, qualities that are available on that side of the spectrum if we can be present to it. So this is the practice of Vedana. Neutral. So how does neutral work? Somebody, uh, the other evening, I was teaching about Vedana, and uh, she asked me what the difference between neutral was and equanimity and that they seem to be the same thing. And her, her story was that she's often experiencing things as neutral, that most of the time she's just neutral about it. And that might be true. Uh, I think a lot of our experiences are actually neutral. Most of them seem to be towards the middle, Otherwise, I think we would be just shoved around from left to right, (laughs) from unpleasant to pleasant, unpleasant to pleasant. But actually, most of our experiences, in my experience anyway, is somewhere in the middle, either right on neutral or just leaning to one side or the other, not so activating. 
So is neutral the same as equanimity? What I found by really looking at that is that equanimity can be found in neutral. We can be equanimous with the Vedana being neutral, but that it doesn't depend on the Vedana being neutral. And that we can have equanimity, and this is where the practice of Vedana leads, we can have equanimity whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So then what's neutral? What does a neutral Vedana even feel like? It's more subtle, isn't it, than pleasant or unpleasant. One of the suggestions by Analayo is to, uh, when it's that subtle, simply notice the lack of pleasant or unpleasant. So you get a sense through that instruction that this can be quite subtle and elusive. This neutral tone often uh, can, without wisdom and understanding, can lead towards ignorance. Lead towards an ignorance of what's actually going on. So often when our experience is neutral, we're not aware of it. We can easily tune out. We can easily get distracted. Be out of body. Not present. There's not enough there to really uh, catch our attention. Boredom can settle in pretty easily when a moment is neutral. I think, though, in those moments, it's not quite neutral. It ends up leaning a little bit towards unpleasant. But it's still close to the middle there. And so when this happens, uh, when, when neutral is ignored, there's all these opportunities that are ignored, all these opportunities to be present with what's here. And so neutral Vedana can be a wonderful place to start bringing your attention to. Those moments that are just subtle and maybe not seeming so interesting. In those moments, though, when attention is brought to whatever is in the experience, so say you're just walking down the street and it's feeling pretty neutral, nothing's really happening, nothing's really going on, by simply bringing your attention to that, you might notice that that neutral feeling suddenly becomes quite interesting. Oh, I can feel my feet on the ground. I can hear the song of birds all around me. I can smell the fragrance from the flowers that are in the garden as I walk by. And suddenly that neutral experience starts to lean more and more towards pleasant. So neutral is an interesting zone that I uh, have been exploring a bit lately and highly recommend to use Vedana in those um, times that don't seem to get a whole lot of attention. Start to notice the flavor of neutral. What is that like? What do you do with neutral? What is your habit when you are in that neutral zone? 
Is it to be present? Or are you more tuned out? Are you looking for other interesting things to happen or to hold your attention? So a wonderful place to practice. With unpleasant, as neutral as associated when, when wisdom and understanding is not applied, unpleasant often can lead to the habit of uh, aversion, pushing away, get rid of it. So an example of this really simple example and something uh, for whatever reason I seem to do often is stubbing your toe. <laughs> and that moment of feeling... You stub your toe, and it hurts. It hurts to stub your toe. And so you have that uh, going through your sense organ of touch, of feeling. It goes, uh, that experience is, makes contact with your consciousness, and then Vedana arises, unpleasant. It arises whether you want it to or not. This is just the natural, um, naturally what happens. This is also part I'm now naming off some of the links in dependent origination. So from there, if the link is not broken, your, your mindfulness is not there, your wisdom is not there, the next link is to your mental states. And so that might be aversion. That might be, uh, damn it, <laughs> why did I just do that? Or it might be, who left those shoes there in the middle of the hallway where I could trip over them? And so very quickly, simply unpleasant can go into even more unpleasant. We begin, you can start to see how we create from these Vedanas our cycle of dukkha. And it's all very much habit-run, habit-driven. So... I could say the same about um, pleasure or pleasant and how uh, something that seems quite pleasant, uh, we often want more. And so one example that uh, a teacher, Narayan Grady, gave in a Dharma talk that I was listening to about Vedana, she said, Imagine somebody is, is massaging or stroking your arm, and it's really pleasant. That touch, it's kind, it's safe, it's really nice, and you want more. Oh, keep going, keep going. And then over time, that wanting more and more, and the person keeps going and keep going, if they keep rubbing your arm, there's going to be a point where it's not so pleasant you know, it starts to maybe even agitate the skin and you're kind of weirded out. <laughs> and suddenly that pleasant turns to incredibly unpleasant. If they kept going, it would actually hurt after a while, that level of friction over a long period of time. And so that thing that we call, oh, so pleasant, oh, keep going, I want more, 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 uh, is a great example of how pleasant and grasping to pleasant can turn into greed. And that greed often um, is unpleasant. <laughs> it actually has a flavor of unpleasant. But we are not so aware of that. 
James has this great example that I'm sure, if not all of you, most of you have um, witnessed and been able to try where he has everybody reach forward. How many of you know this? Reaching for the things you want most in the world. Do you guys know this one? Oh, we're going to do it then. (laughs) Okay, so imagine in front of you the thing you want more than anything in the world. And it's right there in front of you. And I'd like you to physically reach out, keep your bottom on the chair or the cushion, reach out. Now keep reaching. It's right there in front of you. It's right there. Keep reaching. Really, really reach for it. I mean, really reach for it. Feel your whole body engage, reaching, reaching, reaching. It's at your fingertips. It's almost there. And now slowly sit back in your chair as if no longer needing to get, get, get. You're now relaxing into what's here right now. You can feel it. It's a great exercise because you actually can feel the difference between needing and grasping and greed and just being available for the moment, being available with what's here. And so you can see that greed, that grasping, as much as we may think it's pleasant, what we're going for is pleasant, the moment we tighten around it, It's no longer pleasant. And again, it creates that cycle of dukkha. When we can let go and sit back and just be available and open, life has something much more to offer us. Narayan Grady uh, has this wonderful quote, and I'm not sure that it's hers originally, but uh, she's the one I know who uses it. And that is that pleasant is not the best that life has to offer. Isn't that nice? Don't we believe that? Pleasant is not the best that life has to offer. We don't believe that (laughs) most of the time. We're very driven by pleasant and to get rid of unpleasant but it's not the best that life has to offer. So what does life have to offer? Here's a quote from the Dhammapada. There is no fire like greed, no crime like hatred, no sorrow like separation, no sickness like hunger of heart, and no joy like the joy of freedom. Health, contentment, and trust are your greatest possessions, and freedom your greatest joy. Look within, be still. Free from fear and attachment, know the sweet joy of living in the way. So health, contentment, and trust are your greatest possessions, And freedom, your greatest joy. These are the things that the Buddha is pointing to. These are the best that that life has to offer. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Totally impermanent. And these these things that um, we really do want, which we we seek in in, in the pleasant, right? 
are actually here despite whatever the Vedana may be. This is equanimity. Being open and present with whatever is. And so you can be in a very unpleasant experience and hold it in a way that is balanced, present, wise, understanding, compassionate. Imagine what that would be like to be going through something really difficult and being able to hold it. I imagine um, equanimity as this wonderfully large grandmother (laughs) that no matter what you've done will take you in her arms and hold you and you can feel the bigness of her holding whatever is there grounded, completely present, open. This is, to me, the feeling of equanimity, being able to hold your moments of unpleasant. Same with pleasant, that we can enjoy what's pleasant and what's here right now without needing to have it be something more. That's when we actually get to awaken joy, as James is uh, teaching us. That's when we can actually um, enjoy what life is uh, offering us in these beautiful moments, these happy moments, exciting moments. Be there for it. And to hold it with that equanimity that nothing else is needed. What a gift. This is the best that life has to offer. And then neutral, holding those neutral places, nothing else needed. It's just neutral. How wonderful that must be to be able to be within whatever the moment is with that level of peace, inner peace. Here's another um, quote. This is from um, Franz Kafka. You can hold back from suffering of the world. You have permission to do so. And it is in accordance with your nature. But perhaps this very holding back is the one suffering you could have avoided. So pointing out our humanness the nature of what we do when there is unpleasant and pleasant and neutral, holding that lightly. Oh, there I am, doing it again, pushing it away or trying to get more, spacing out. This is just our habits. Some of these habits are karmic. It's part of our human nature. We all share them. Some of them are ones that we've been developing since we were little kids. It's just what we've learned. And so now we're retraining ourselves. And so being really gentle with ourselves as we go through this process, process of untangling these experiences, seeing them for the fullness of what they are. Not only is it emotion in this moment, but it's, it's a Vedana as well. Not only is this story that's being repeated over and over in my mind, but there's a Vedana 
also. And so seeing this fullness of experience, we can start to uh, detach or start to let go of that holding on, that identification to what we're perceiving. Part of how Vedana works, and I mentioned this a little bit a moment ago, is that there is the... uh, there's the experience, there's something, some sort of form, something has come up into, been born into life. Um, for instance, maybe a car going by with its radio blaring. You would hear that, it would go through your sense organ of the ear, and Vedana is created. Now, for some of us, that Vedana will be unpleasant. I do not appreciate the fact that they think they can drive around with their you know, radio blasting and don't they know that we're in here and I can't concentrate and they ruined my meditation. Unpleasant. For some of us, we're going to hear it and it'll be pleasant. Oh, I love that song. <laughs> oh, that brought me back. I needed a little bit of something to bring me back to this moment. And for others, we don't even notice it. Someone later says, did you hear? It was the unpleasant one. Did you hear that noise? (laughs) No, I didn't even know it was there. I have no idea what you're talking about. So Vedana is relative. It depends on who is experiencing what. It depends on our conditioning. So what's unpleasant to me might be completely pleasant to you. This also speaks to the ethereal nature of Vedana, that it belongs to nobody, that it is a part of experience that arises and passes, and it has no owner. This is something that I find incredibly fascinating. When I am in communication or um, interaction with another person, realizing that we might be experiencing the same moment, but that our Vedanas may be completely different. This is important information to keep in mind, right? Especially when interacting with others, that we're living in two different perspectives. Sometimes we align, but often how we are seeing and sensing the world is different. And it's not personal. So Vedana helps us see this. Suddenly, as we practice Vedana, our understanding mirrors, I think, uh, the nature of Vedana. Impersonal. Impermanent. So we have a lot to learn from Vedana because, of course, if it's not personal and we know it's not permanent, that place of equanimity suddenly is much more accessible than if we identify with it. If we create this sense of self out of it, personalize it, which, of course, is naturally what we tend to do. 
And so this is kind of radical, this idea of no longer being driven by it, pushed around by it. Aren't we pushed around by our Vedana all the time? This is not freedom. Freedom is seeing it for what it really is. Freedom is being able to see it and hold it with that equanimity, that whatever it is, whatever the Vedana is, we can be present with it. We can be resilient. We can be not pushed around by it. This is what Vedana has to teach us. There's this beautiful quote by Rumi. I didn't know if I'd be able to slip it in here, um, but I think I'll bring it in here. (laughs) It speaks to this place of letting go and non-attachment, non-identify. Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and right-doing, there is a field I will meet you there. When the soul lies down in the grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make sense anymore. So to practice with Vedana, I'd like to give you just some practical information about how to work with this. And then we'll stop and I'll do, we'll do some Q&A. So first of all, getting to know your Vedana. Getting to know what does pleasant feel like in the body and in the mind. What does unpleasant feel like in the body and in the mind. What does neutral feel like in the body and in the mind. Getting intimate with it, really knowing it. This is actually the instruction in the Satipatthana Sutta. No, no feeling through feeling, meaning nothing else is needed. No feeling tone, no Vedana, simply by being with it, being mindful of it. Being mindful mean, meaning know it. Not up here, but on a cellular level. Know it with your body. So getting to know your Vedanas. Then noticing how you get pushed around by those Vedanas. What is it like when you are experiencing something pleasant and you begin to feel that sense of wanting more? Greed, grasping. What is it like to feel unpleasant and to want to get rid of it, change, fix it? Watch how, what your tendencies are, your habits. Nothing really is needed to be done. Just watch it. Know it. Notice if there's aversion to what you're doing, your habits of, of being with these Vedanas. And watch that as well. So there can often be these layers of experience, of knowing what's there. Noticing the arising of Vedana. Noticing its passing, becoming intimate with its impermanent 
nature. Let it teach you. So these are just some simple suggestions on how to work with Vedana. There's a really sweet quote by the Buddha, and I'm afraid I don't have a reference for where it's coming from, which sutta. But he says, sit on the banks of the river of feeling, meaning Vedana, and let them go by. Sit back and just watch your Vedana as if leaves floating through a river and you're sitting on the bank simply watching it, not personal. Just experience floating by. There's this great um, cartoon, Snoopy cartoon with Lucy, and I blew it up. I don't know if you can see it, (laughs) but it reminded me of this quote from the Buddha. And it's Snoopy sitting next to a tree, and he's just watching the leaves fall off the tree. And so Lucy comes up and says, Anyone who would sit and watch leaves fall off of a tree must be pretty stupid. And then she leaves, and Snoopy turns and watches her leave. And then he turns back to the tree and the falling leaves and says, I'm happy. And I think in many ways, (laughs) that's all we're doing here. Just watching, just observing, getting to know. Nothing else is needed. So thank you very much for your attention. There's a little bit of time. Yeah, there's a little bit of time for questions or comments. I'm wondering how you teach your kids this complicated stuff. <laughs> Yeah, that's a great. Do you want this? Um, I'll repeat your question, but I, they would like us to use the mic. Thank you. So, oops, the question was, how do you teach kids this complicated stuff? Um, very simply. Oops, I think I just pulled my mic. Very simply. So with something with Vedana, I wouldn't call it Vedana necessarily. And I'm, I also, I teach in a secular uh, format when I'm in education. So I don't necessarily talk about uh, Vedana, but you can very easily begin to point out experience to kids, and uh, is really young kids too. You can start really young pointing out uh, the nature of their emotions and their thoughts, pointing out that they're separate, pointing out that uh, something comes into their experience. They're stimulated by something. You know, they're on the playground and someone yells something that's really mean and that uh, they will immediately have a reaction. And with that reaction, uh, or with that, sorry, with the uh, stimulus comes an emotion. And with that emotion comes a reaction and that they seem like the same thing. So this is similar to Vedana and that they're actually both, they're different. That one is just the 
uh, feeling that's there that's caused by what happened. And the other is what we really want to do about it, whether we're conscious of it or not. So we might want to yell back. We might want to go push them. We might want to go run and tell a teacher. But um, they seem like the same thing, our reaction and our emotion. And that if you can bring in mindfulness, a moment of knowing your experience or a breath, that suddenly that reaction can be transformed into uh, a more thoughtful approach or um, just a different, different option, a choice of what to do next. And so these are ways that you can talk to kids about Vedana and breaking down their experience a little bit from what seems like everything happening all at once. Oftentimes kids will be asked, why did you do that? And they'll say, well, I don't know. (laughs) And they mean it. Well, they were just, they said this thing, and then I don't know, I just started hitting them. And it's, that's true, that's their experience. And so breaking it down into pieces of, well, then what happened? And then what happened? And are they the same? Was your reaction the same as their uh, the same as your emotion. Can you have that emotion and have a different reaction? So these are just different ways to, to simplify. Teaching kids, though, is a wonderful way to learn Dharma because as you simplify, you realize this is simple. <laughs> Not simple to do. I don't mean to say it like that, but the teachings themselves, they're simple. In their essence, they're very simple. And, and so powerful because of that, I think. We overcomplicate things as adults so easily. But uh, teaching to kids, it, it begins to, uh, we begin to retrain our understanding of all of this stuff. It's nice. Thank you for the question. Anything else? Yeah, so there's a mic here if you wouldn't mind. Um, as you were, I think it, is it on? Yeah, as you were talking mm-hmm. um, at the beginning, I started thinking about the role of intention mm-hmm. in how we experience um, Vedana. Or, I mean, first of all, mindfulness, having to have mindfulness in order to separate out just the feeling tone without the reaction is one thing, but it seems to me like if you can have the intention at the beginning of the day to try to stay mindful, you might be able to uh, not get lost so much in, Mm -hmm. in feelings of unpleasantness or not be rushing from feelings of neutrality and mm-hmm. not be trying to bask too long in the pleasantness, you know? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Can you comment on intention, intention and how it relates? Sure, absolutely. Intention can be a very powerful thing. It is, in a way, a collecting of our, our mindfulness in a moment saying, this is what I intend. And so intention in itself holds a quality of mindfulness. Um, Vedana can be very um, informative as far as 
where our intention is coming from. So, is our, va- our, is our intention coming from a place um, being born from a moment or an experience of unpleasant, neutral, or pleasant? Um, this can be helpful to kind of shed some of the layers of delusion that we might have around our intentions. So, for instance, if our intention is to practice and to be, be mindful, noticing what the tone is in that intention. Is it because we're really sick of being unmindful? Is it because um, we just feel like that's really what we would like to do? Or that this is it's coming from a place that... Uh, is a little bit more wholesome and wise. So you can start to see where the Vedana is, what the tone is in intention. As far as keeping your intention throughout the day, that takes practice. So the intention is a wonderful thing of collecting our mindfulness, moving forward maybe with our day or with our practice, our sit, with an idea of how, what we'd like to cultivate, And then, stuff happens. (laughs) We get distracted. We completely forget. and um, Or, sometimes we're actually able to stay with whatever we intend to do. Uh, It takes practice, though, to follow through with our intention, especially with this practice, especially with mindfulness. I like to remind people, and because this was remind, someone reminded me of this, that we've been doing this, uh, our habits, having holding these perspectives and viewpoints our whole lives, and now suddenly we're we're changing, or maybe you've been doing this for a long time, but even still, um, you know, you're you're really shifting direction with how your mind operates. And so retraining the mind takes time. It takes a lot of practice. And so finding ways to support that intention with practice is what will help carry out that intention. So I don't know if that is what you were speaking to, but I hope that that's helpful. Yeah, Jim. Um, Yeah, it's coming. Um, I'm interested. Uh, Vedana is a very interesting thing that I experience in my practice, really not just when I'm sitting and I say, okay, today is going to be a 45 minutes of Vedana, of, of just awareness of pleasant and pleasant neutral. Mm-hmm. I find it very useful just during the day, like you know, feelings come along and I go, oh, yeah, what's, what's going on here? Okay, there's, there's this pleasantness or there's unpleasantness or it's, you know, where does it go? But I'm curious, is this something like with mindfulness of the body, the first um, foundation. It's, you know, with MBSR training, mindfulness-based stress reduction training, you just sit and be with the body and so mm-hmm. on for long periods of time or maybe even a whole retreat. And for the other foundations also. But I've not really heard much of just making Vedana be... Let, let's go on a Vedana retreat, for instance. <laughs> I mean, is that something that would be done? It seems like... I mean, it keeps intriguing me as something that would be worth really yeah. sitting with for a long time. But I, I've never heard any teaching on that, and I've never really tried just sort of sitting on a stable sort of way with that. Yeah, thank you. Um, 
Yes, you, you, it is a practice in itself, and it's something that's outlined in the Satipatthana Sutta. And so um, in, in the book, um, uh, Satipatthana, Direct Path to Realization, um, there's a whole chapter on just Vedana and how to use it as a practice in it of itself. Um, I don't know of any Vedana retreats, but it would be super interesting <laughs> if they did something like that. And you could would actually do that. Would that be a pleasant retreat that. or an unpleasant retreat? <laughs> I think it would retreat. be all of the above. <laughs> but it, w- it is something that um, can be a primary practice and something that also, I didn't mention this so much, but um, maybe alluded to the fact that it's something easily taken off the cushion. You know, So it's something that we can check in about no matter what our activity is. So uh, the Vedana while driving your car, your, the Vedana while you're sitting in front of your computer, Vedana in conversation with someone. Um, so it can be a practice in it of itself. There's, with this, this book, um, I think with the four foundations, there's, it's taught in a linear fashion, but they all support each other, and you kind of keep coming back to all four as you are developing one at a time. And so even while developing Vedana, you'll notice that your understanding then of um, the mind and mental states or uh, the dharmas, which is the, the fourth foundation, or the body, which is the first foundation, that your understanding of all these foundations deepen. So it's not just Vedana, of course, um, but you can have Vedana as a primary practice. One thing that has struck me in the Anapanasati Sutta, where there's you know, 16 stages and divided into fours, and classically the second one is, is said to be parallel with the second foundation of Vedana. Uh-huh. But it doesn't say sitting being aware of, of dukkha. It says sitting be, being aware of, uh, well... PT or of rapture, and then being sitting, being aware of pleasantness. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But yeah. it doesn't say neutralness or unpleasantness. Uh huh. You know, so the the dukkha is kind of left out of the Anapanasati Sutta. So it seems like it's really emphasizing the the sitting and being aware and practicing with the sukha, but not the. This dukkha. is a wonderful point because actually, this is part of the reason that the Buddha does not say, you know turn away from pleasant experience because actually the experience of a gathered mind, a concentrated mind is pleasant and it's actually a component to concentration that is absolutely necessary. And so this is what's being pointed to is, is that this collective mindful mind, um, part of that, what the sensation will be is pleasant. Um, it's, yeah, yeah, so... I think that I'm not sure if, uh, in 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 that sutta. What, I'd have to go back and read it, but that's my guess. Is so there? If you did a, if you did a Vedana that. retreat after a while, you get collected and gathered, and it'll be a sukha retreat. In <laughs> Maybe <laughs> I don't know. I think uh, retreat experiences. Everyone has the one that they're meant to have, and <laughs> sometimes it's pleasant, sometimes not so much. Yeah. Any? There's just. Another couple minutes. Yeah, in the front. And then we'll wrap it up. I'm just curious if you can say a little bit more about 
<clears throat> the role of curiosity. Because um, I know for me, yeah, curiosity has a pleasant vedana. Um, yeah, I don't know. Can you say a little bit more about the role of curiosity as we're working with the vedanas? Sure. I think it especially comes into play with neutral. Um, I think curiosity is a wonderful, skillful means and something that you can um, bring into a meditation that's feeling dull or um, your mind is kind of scattered or sleepy, actually zooming into the experience of breath, body, even um, emotional states, really zooming in and getting to know them uh, at a closer level. So, for example, the breath, um, zooming in and not just feeling the breath in and out, but then feeling um, the temperature of breath, the feeling of the hairs being uh, tickled as the breath goes in and out, uh, and really noticing where the breath ends and then there's the pause and then where the breath comes back in and then there's a pause. And so you can really zoom in and get curious about the breath. It might also, um, as far as Vedana is concerned, when you're in that neutral territory and a bit oblivious to what's going on, if you can notice, I'm really kind of not present here, and then check in, what's the Vedana? It's just kind of neutral. Okay, so maybe what would be skillful is checking out what is actually in my experience right now. And... um, really being present for whatever that neutral moment is. So curiosity can help in that way, too. I think we're, we're out of time. Um, yeah. So what I'd like to do is just dedicate the merit. And then as I'm afterwards, I know there were, uh, there, maybe there was another hand over here. You can come and ask me, and we could have a little conversation about it. But right now, what I'd like to do is dedicate the merit, which is really just acknowledging the fact that we're all here. Acknowledging that we're here doing something very wholesome. Coming here to practice, to listen to Dharma, to be here with Sangha. This is wholesome action. We're here because of varying intentions, but many of them rooted in wanting to understand, wanting more inner peace, wanting to wake up. This is wholesome. We also take this time to acknowledge that this wholesomeness that we're developing through this practice here all together is not just for us, that this is for all beings. So as you go back out, uh, go back into your your home life, uh, as you go into work tomorrow, as you interact with your friends, with the barista at the coffee shop or people in the grocery store, this practice that we're developing is for them too and has a ripple effect and affects those around us. Now imagining that ripple effect affecting all beings and wishing all beings to be touched by this wholesomeness.
May all beings be happy. May all beings be at ease. And may all beings be in touch with their inner wisdom and compassion. Thank you very much for coming and for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.